Blog Talk Radio. before the Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activities which might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. President Bush signed a formal agreement that will end the United States as we know it. And he took the step without approval from either the U.S. Congress or the people of the United States. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. It's known as the Bilderberg Group. Could their objective be world domination? I'm Jim Tucker. I've chased Bilderberg for 30 years. I'll never... Give up the chase. Bilderberg's plan for the whole world is nothing less than world government. I'm not comfortable with that at all. Who elected these guys to run the planet? They are the elitists. They feel they should run the world for their own selfish interests. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. Bilderberg is making great progress toward a world government, and only an educated, informed public can stop them in their tracks. David Rockefeller admits in his own memoirs that he wants to destroy the United States. He's a traitor! It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Alrighty. All right, we'll do a little uh, late-night history here. Figured, uh, might as well, what the heck. So, uh, enjoy, enjoy.
Never had such an armada been seen in the history of mankind. On board 7,000 vessels, 130,000 men crossed the stretch of sea with air cover from 20,000 planes.
Churchill who feared attacking Germany head-on. The Anglo-Americans had vainly hoped to weaken the Axis by passing through North Africa in order to invade Southern Europe via Italy. But they were stopped short near Naples and were unable to advance any closer to Germany. For a long time, Roosevelt was hesitant. He didn't think his country was ready enough for such a huge operation. But he now wanted to put an end to the Third Reich as soon as possible and to do so in the West. He also hoped to cooperate with the Soviets after the victory. Churchill could only resign himself to it. Since the United States had entered the war in 1941, Hitler had feared an invasion of the German-occupied west coasts of Europe. planning a gigantic operation, the construction of the Atlantic Wall, a continuous line of fortifications running almost 4,000 miles from northern Norway to the Spanish border. Despite the fact that most Germans believed the Allies would try to land in the Calais region, only 25 miles from the British coast. German authorities therefore requisitioned thousands of men, free laborers, Frenchmen in the compulsory work service, refugees, Jews and prisoners of war to carry out this outrageous project which would require 13 million tons of concrete. drew to a close, Fortress Europe seemed to be firmly in German hands. Join large-scale battles with military vehicles. The online action game War Thunder has received a major update. On January the 15th, 1944, having been handpicked by Roosevelt to lead the landings, Ike Eisenhower arrived in London to plan Operation Overlord. is being set for the beginning of a great and crucial test all over the world. I am completely confident that the soldiers, sailors, and airmen, and all the civil populations of the United Nations will demonstrate once and for all that an aroused democracy is the most formidable fighting machine that can be devised. Thank you. 
possible. They were natural actors, deep in their thoughts, living their own experiences. I wasn't afraid, because there was no fear on their faces. Just the desire to get out of that bloody boat that was making them seasick.
yet, even the cold eye of a mechanical camera can't fail to capture a simple human gesture. Soon, the very first French house would be liberated in Normandy. It would cost the lives of a hundred men, which Allied cameramen had been asked not to film. It was better to focus on the first German prisoners and the anger that one proud Frenchman showed towards them. The German surrender did nothing to mask the difficulties met by the men on Juno Beach, where a rough sea was causing problems for the landing of the second assault wave. colleagues began their advance inland towards Caen. And already the first reward, in the shape of these young French women, delighted at seeing their country liberated by these men, many of whom spoke French, albeit with a funny accent.
yet, late in the day, with the sun out, and after the first waves had managed to establish beachheads and advance inland, more troops began to arrive at Omaha. At last, it was possible to say that the landings had been a success. Now, it was on to the next battle, for Normandy and for France. Before taking action, he delayed deploying his armored divisions and was unable to take Caen as he was supposed to have done on day one. Moreover, his troops, relieved at having been able to land without too much damage, seemed to have a lack of bite. Their cameraman embodies this in a way, strolling around filming these first funny Frenchmen asked to pose for the cause. And these ones seem more than happy to oblige. On this day, June the 8th, Norman Clegg, the man with a clapperboard, filmed the first moments of appeasement when German prisoners and wounded no longer had anything to fear from their enemies of yesterday. approach of the liberators meant they had to leave. 
counterattack also isolated a number of Allied paratrooper divisions, often dropping at imprecise locations they had been unable to link up with their comrades advancing inland from the sea. Many were captured, but few seemed resigned to their fate. American airborne troops had lost over half their equipment and one in five of their men. All these men had paid dear for the honor of being the first to tread on French soil. But their overwide dispersion at least managed to keep the Germans confused, making them believe that a far greater number of men had been dropped than in reality. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York just issued a digital dollar, effectively replacing paper money with nothing more than a government-controlled computer program. And now it was the turn of the 81st Airborne to be laid to rest, before their comrades-in-arms paid them a final tribute. need of ports to land. They now had need of artificial ports to continue the battle. 
to provide logistics and supplies for the hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers. Every day, 150 to 200 ships unloaded some 7,000 vehicles, 15,000 tons of supplies and thousands of men in the port of Haromarsh on the British side and the port of Omaha on the American side.
The average age of the prisoners, some old, some very young, showed the decline of the German army in the West, while its younger, battle-hardened troops were deployed in the East, fighting the Red Army. 36,000 prisoners at Cherbourg, a huge number in terms of what cameras can capture, although they do often take us by surprise and mark us forever. Those of the captured officers maintained a degree of haughtiness. Or was it perhaps shame? After Cherbourg, Hitler decided to personally oversee the German army in the West. He removed von Rundstedt, who had suggested calling a truce, and replaced him with the more obliging Field Marshal von Kluger. Rommel, dismayed by the Führer's hardline policies, knew that all he could do now was to delay the ultimate disaster.
With the Americans in difficulty, the British simply had to capture Khan. Montgomery finally decided to employ considerable means. He asked for backup from the Royal Air Force. Over 2,500 tons of bombs were dropped on the city. my brand new two-hour live master class. I'm about to show you what night. On July the 13th, Montgomery arrived in the city. It had taken him over a month to capture only part of Kong, a city he had hoped to take in one day, setting up the Allied push inland. Clearly, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Although the inhabitants raised the flag of the Cross of Lorraine, much of the city was still in German hands. But that didn't prevent the British propaganda machine from having people believe that the inhabitants of the city of a thousand steeples and British troops were happy to drink a toast together. Goodbye. Thanks again. Don't mention it. Pleasure was all mine. Were such intensive bombing and the 2,000 deaths it caused when the German defences were placed around the city really necessary? The debate still rages today. Each man and woman reacted in their own way. Who was this German playing the organ in a ruined Normandy church? A madman? A filthy cherry? A music lover? Or a lost soldier of Hitler, now weighed down by his leader's excesses, simply enjoying a moment's escape from this Holocaust scenery? the turn of the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, for land. He wanted to check the state of operations ongoing in the car sector in person.
But however much Montgomery played the good tour guide, he only dominated his car and not the plane of calm, which was still under German army control. Ten days after taking the city, the British were yet to break through German lines, and Churchill's agitation wasn't about to change that. For Eisenhower, who had hoped for a breakthrough in this sector, it was a total failure, considering the huge means deployed. The Supreme Commander placed more and more trust in the discreet three-star general Omar Bradley, who had organized the landings in Omaha and Utah before taking Cherbourg. Eisenhower appreciated his calm, his clear-headedness, and his effectiveness. Bradley thought the Americans could break through enemy lines in the Cotton Town. The operation codeword Cobra, like a snake that leans back, then goes for the jugular. Forcing the Germans to surrender and to pick the city like a ripe fruit. 
But the eloquent French leader managed to persuade Eisenhower to enter the city in order to avoid a possible bloodbath, but also to quash the rise of communist resistance members. Ike yielded, and Bradley agreed to detach Leclerc's 2nd Armored Division, which had won renown at Falaise, so that it would be the first unit into Paris and would accept the German surrender. After several fierce battles south of the capital, the suburb sky turned blue. Women wore red, and the men sported white shirts, forming a tricolor world to welcome Leclerc's boys at the gates of Paris. Of course, you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, 
all that could not have been possible. If you go back a little bit before then, the Battle of Kursk, if the German army wasn't weakened by Kursk, I believe they probably would have had the strength to push back the Allies uh, back into the sea. But they, they were so weakened at that point. And still, look at the amount of loss of life. It's just a, simply a, uh, hor- horrendous. I mean, 22,000 people one day. I mean, just imagine that. And then that's on, uh, you know, the American side. So let's look at the Battle of Kursk here real quick. And uh, make sure nobody's on the phone line. Good. Good. I won't talk to anybody tonight. All right, let's look at the Battle of Kursk. officers could see the danger, but the Fuhrer was blind to it. On the 10th of May, 1943, the architect of Germany's tank forces, General Heinz Guderian, became engaged in a heated conversation with Adolf Hitler regarding Hitler's decision to attack at Kursk. Guderian is reported to have asked, how many people do you think even know where Kursk is? It is a matter of profound indifference to the world whether we hold Kursk or not. Why do we want to attack in the East at all this year? To this, Hitler replied, You're quite right. Whenever I think of this attack, my stomach turns over. Guderian strongly advised Hitler to remain on the defensive, but Hitler was determined. He would go ahead with the attack. Guderian was not alone in his apprehension. Almost to a man, Hitler's generals had advised him to adopt a defensive posture on the Eastern Front during 1943. The last two years had cost them dearly, and they needed a chance to rest and regroup. Hitler's decision to attack would seriously damage his forces and remove any hope the Germans had of regaining the initiative in the Eastern Theatre. By draining away the German tank strength, the short but intensive Battle of Kursk would tip the scales of World War II decisively in the favor of Soviet Russia. On the 1st of September, 1939, Hitler's forces smashed through the Polish frontier. This prompted Britain and France to officially declare war on Germany two days later. Hitler hoped to avoid this outcome, as he never expected the Western governments to go to war over Poland. Poland was obliterated in a matter of weeks, when Hitler used the Blitzkrieg tactic to gain control of the country. Before Hitler could continue advancing eastwards, he knew he would first have to deal with his enemies in the West. By May 1940, the German troops turned their offensive westwards. The war with the West was drastically different to that with Poland, as the forces facing the Germans were modern and well-equipped. However, the British and French armies were still relying on tactics used during the First World War and were totally unprepared for the superior skills and strategy of the Germans. 
Within weeks, Hitler took control of Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg and France. The British managed to escape across the channel at Dunkirk, but were in no position to fight back. Full of confidence after the great victories of 1939 and 1940, Hitler pushed ahead with his plans to invade Soviet Russia in 1941. He held a deep contempt for the Soviet Union and boasted that we just have to kick in the door and the whole rotten edifice will come crashing down. The gains made during the invasion of Russia in June 1941 confirmed Hitler's optimism as a disorganized and poorly led Red Army retreated in complete confusion. However, the first winter in Russia gave the German soldiers a sharp taste of what lay in store for them. Battered but unbowed, the German forces just managed to avoid total collapse. For the next 18 months, the front lines seesawed back and forth as both sides wrestled for control of the towns and cities. The southern region in particular saw some of the biggest and most damaging battles for both sides. Ferocious battles for Sevastopol, Kiev, Rostov and Stalingrad consumed vast amounts of men and materials as control of the towns and cities swayed from side to side. February 1943, the total defeat at Stalingrad was a disaster for the Germans, but a switch to the strategic defensive might just have brought enough time to regain the initiative in 1944. But Hitler was adamant. He would attack. By mid-1943, the focus of attention would once more be in the south of Russia, where the Germans were to make one more attempt to gain the decisive edge. This was to be the last great gamble in the East, a high noon for Hitler and his hopes for victory. after the stunning victories over Poland in 1939 and the Western Allies in 1940, Hitler pushed ahead with his ultimate goal of defeating Soviet Russia in 1941. His generals had advised him to wait, for German forces were not strong enough at this stage of the war. They needed more time to prepare. Hitler instead mounted the biggest land invasion in history. Like his previous campaigns, Hitler expected quick victory, and the mobile warfare tactic was employed once again. By the winter of 1941, however, it was apparent that the war in Russia would be difficult and take far longer than anticipated. The Russians launched a massive counter-offensive during this first winter and almost succeeded in defeating the Germans. Hitler himself issued the order to stand fast and hold the ground already won. The success of this policy convinced Hitler that he knew better than his generals. 
But when it was repeated, the policy of holding on was to prove disastrous. The crushing defeat of the German 6th Army at Stalingrad affected Hitler deeply, as it came as a direct result of his refusal to allow a withdrawal. Now he planned the Kursk offensive to regain the initiative and save his reputation. Unlike Hitler, the ruthless dictator of the USSR had no formal military experience. A politician, first and foremost, he was prepared to do almost anything to maintain his position of power. Stalin was responsible for the purges of the Red Army in 1937, which severely hampered their fighting capabilities in the early stages of the German invasion. The loss of so many commanders prevented the Red Army from fighting cohesively. Nevertheless, Stalin knew how to manipulate people and situations to his own advantage. Once the German invasion began, he quickly rallied the population behind him, despite the fact that he had been systematically killing countless numbers of his own people. He played on their love of Mother Russia, and even within the army, he ensured that the power of the political commissars was limited during these crucial early stages. He was astute enough, however, to listen to his generals and took their advice many times. He put the brilliance of commanders like Zhukov and Konyev to good use, playing one against the other to ensure maximum results. Quick to take the glory for any successes and ruthless enough to ensure his troops and people would not dare to question him, he saw his nation through to ultimate victory over the Nazi invaders. spring of 1943, the German army and German nation were still in deep shock over the defeat at Stalingrad. This defeat was their first major reverse of the war, and the famed tenacity of the Russian soldier had been decisively proved. The Russian offensive launched immediately after Stalingrad presented the very real danger that the German army would be pushed back even further. the Russian attack. The stunning victory at Kharkov, achieved against the odds, became known as von Manstein's miracle. The desperate men of Army Group South had at last contained the Soviet advance. Further north, Army Group Center had held fast and halted the Russian advances near Orel. In between these two areas, the Soviet advances had created a huge enemy bulge, which held large amounts of Soviet men and materials. 
In the middle of the bulge lay the town of Kursk. Keen to capitalize on the victory at Kharkov, Hitler wanted to regain the initiative in the east. Von Manstein drew up a plan that provided for a similar action to Kharkov, where the German army had first given up ground and had then quickly counterattacked when the Russian lines of supply became overstretched. Characteristically, Hitler rejected the withdrawal phase of the plan, but approved the attacks towards Kursk. This part of the plan was developed by Colonel General Zeitzler, who gave it the final draft, codenamed Zitadel. The plan was to advance from the north and south towards Kursk and trap the Soviets in a huge pocket. This pocket could then be systematically destroyed. To make the plan work, however, the attack would have to be launched quickly before the Russians had time to prepare defenses. The initial plan had May as the start date, but various delays forced the start date back to July, by which time the Russians had prepared defensive positions that would present the Germans with formidable obstacles. that the mighty German army could be defeated. The seemingly endless resources of Russia in both men and machines could and would be sacrificed to ensure the ultimate goal was achieved. The Russian offensive launched after Stalingrad had been intended to build on the recent successes, but what was not expected was the ability of the German soldier to recover quickly. The Russians suffered a surprise defeat at Kharkov in March 1943, just one month after the surrender at Stalingrad. further, but Zhukov and others persuaded Stalin that a defensive posture was more suitable at this stage of the war. The Russians were also fully aware of the German plans, as they had been receiving information from the Lucy spy ring. This reliable source was fed from Bletchley Park in England. The scientists working at this top-secret location had broken the secret German Enigma code at the start of the war and had been watching developments very closely ever since. They passed information to the Soviets via an intricate web of contacts situated in Switzerland. Although the Russians never knew the true source of the information, they came to rely upon its accuracy. They were therefore given the dates of the planned German attacks in advance and began to prepare accordingly. Massive defensive belts were constructed with the sole purpose of the destruction of German armor and men. Zhukov, the master tactician, also gathered strong reserves that would be unleashed when the time was right. This well-prepared trap would be the launch pad for the defeat of Germany in the East. 
Georgi Zhukov gained his first military experience under the Tsarist army during World War I. He actually changed sides during the war and joined the communists during the revolution in 1917. Zhukov served in various positions after the war and became an early expert in the use of armor. He managed to escape the purges of 1937 that cost so many their lives. His first real success came against Japan at Kalkin Gol during 1939, and he then played his part in the successful defense of Leningrad. He was given the responsibility for the defense of Stalingrad in late 1942, when he planned and executed the first major defeat of the German army. Zhukov was a quick-tempered man who intensely disliked those who failed in their duty. Konstantin Rokossovsky was one of the Soviet advisers during the Spanish Civil War. He was also caught up in the purges of 1937. He escaped death, but did spend a period in prison. He was called back into service to help in the defense of Moscow in 1941 and also had the control of the Don Front during the Stalingrad battle. He was in command of the Central Front during the Battle of Kursk. Pavel Rotmistrov was also an early advocate of tank warfare. He first had command of the Russian 7th Tank Corps and was involved in the fighting around Rostov and Stalingrad where he formed his tactical ideas. It was Rotmistrov who first suggested the use of complete armor-only formations. This tactic was adopted, and he subsequently gained command of the 5th Guards Tank Army. A very able commander, Rotmistrov had the appearance of a quiet schoolteacher, but the mind and determination of a brilliant military tactician. Ivan Konyev, born in 1897, served the Tsar during the First World War as an NCO. By 1917, he had become a communist and joined the Russian Revolution, serving as a political commissar. He then joined the Red Army and graduated successfully from the Frunz Military Academy. In August 1941, he served in the Transcaucasian Military District inside the Smolensk sector. In October 1941, he became commander of the Kalinin Front and helped to resist the German drive towards Moscow. Konyev made a name for himself as an aggressive and highly competent commander, regarded by many as second only to Zhukov. He was the perfect man to command the steppe front during the Kursk offensive. Zeitzler served as an infantryman during World War I and continued his military career during the interwar years. In 1934, he transferred to the newly created tank section, which was one of a number of changes brought in under Hitler. By 1939, he had risen to the rank of colonel, his forte being organization and mechanized warfare. He held various staff positions during the first two years of the war, and by 1942, he was serving in the West under von Rundstedt. He played a significant role in the Allied defeat at Dieppe during that year, bringing him to the attention of Hitler. A month after Dieppe, 
he was promoted to general and became the chief of staff. His approach to older generals sometimes caused him problems with fellow officers, for he always spoke his mind, even clashing with Hitler on a number of occasions. He tried in vain to make Hitler see sense at Stalingrad. It was Zeitzler who drew up the plans for the Kursk offensive and its pincer attacks. Although some of the other generals voiced their concerns, Zeitzler pushed enthusiastically for the plan, which was finally approved by Hitler. Its consequences would prove disastrous for Germany. Erich von Manstein, the commander of Army Group South, is acknowledged as one of the most able German commanders of the Second World War. His military experience dated back to World War I, where he fought on the Western and Eastern Fronts. Before the end of the war, he had reached the rank of captain. By the time Hitler came to power in 1933, von Manstein was a lieutenant colonel with the German general staff. Further promotions followed until the outbreak of World War II, when he held the rank of lieutenant general. Before the start of the war, he had been responsible for suggesting the use of the assault gun that was to become known as the Sturmgeschütz, a machine that was to play a significant part in Germany's conduct of the war. He was closely involved in planning the various opening campaigns. The successful plan for the attacks in the West in 1940 are also thought to be the brainchild of von Manstein, although Hitler later claimed them as his own. Von Manstein had a gift for determining the enemy's intentions and identifying their weaknesses. He held various field commands from the start of the war with Russia in 1941, and successes included the defeat of the fortress of Sevastopol. However, the longer the war in Russia dragged on, the more Hitler and von Manstein differed over its execution. Hitler was obsessed with holding positions to the last man, and von Manstein tried in vain to change Hitler's tactical reasoning. By the start of July 1943, von Manstein was in overall command of Army Group South, which played the major role in the execution of Plan Zitadel. Hermann Hoff, born on the 12th of April 1895, served in the First World War. He remained in the German army and by 1936, Hoth was a divisional commander. He commanded the 15th Panzer Corps during the invasion of Poland, and on the 27th of October 1939, was awarded with the Ritterkreuz for his service. Hoth went on to lead the 15th Panzer Corps through the successful French campaign of 1940. He then led Panzer Group III, later renamed the 3rd Panzer Army, towards Leningrad and on to Moscow, where he almost succeeded in his mission. By 1942, Hoth was commander of the 4th Panzer Army and in action at Stalingrad. His mission was to get the trapped 6th Army out of the city, but the task was virtually impossible, and he failed. Hoth and his 4th Panzer Army went on to be involved at the heart of fighting at Kursk. played a significant role in the plans for Kursk. To the north of the salient, 
Von Kluger's army group would serve in the 9th army that would provide one of the two great pincers designed to snuff out the Soviet salient. Walter Modell also gained his early experiences during World War I, attaining the rank of captain. Like von Manstein, he had served in the interwar German army in various staff and field postings, including a stint as a lecturer on tactics and history. He continued in various posts in the early stages of World War II, and by mid-1940 held the rank of Lieutenant General, when he was also given command of the 3rd Panzer Division. Although he was an infantryman through and through, he quickly made it his job to explore the potential of tank warfare. Modell constantly visited the front lines and always took a keen interest in the welfare of his men. His division was involved in the titanic encirclement at Kiev and also the attacks towards Moscow. Modell firmly believed in the concept of lightning war and his successes did not go unnoticed by Hitler. By the start of 1942, he was in command of the 9th Army with the rank of Colonel General. He was given the task of attacking in the Rzhev sector in southern Russia. The bloody battles here would last for almost a year. By spring 1943, his 9th Army was well placed to take part in the Kursk offensive. developed for the offensive. General Heinz Guderian had been recalled and appointed to a new position of Inspector General of the Armoured Forces, especially for the Kursk battle. of 1937 upon the army by Stalin had left a weak and poorly led force. Around the start of 1941, however, the army was undergoing a reorganization. When the Germans launched their attack in June of that year, they caught the Red Army off guard. advances by the Germans cut deep into the Russian rear areas. In many cases, the Germans found themselves advancing eastwards and also defending westwards as the retreating Russians caught up with them. There appeared to be no effective organization or control over the mass of Russian soldiers in the early stages. As the first winter set in, however, the first signs appeared that things were not going to go Hitler's way. Better adapted to the climate and countryside, the Russian army quickly launched their first offensive that almost succeeded in overrunning the German army. The main drawback for the Red Army was the constant interference by political commissars who instilled fear into every soldier. Often, commanders were reluctant to take key decisions without clear instructions from much higher up. This directly affected the course of the fighting. 
and may have contributed to some of the Red Army's defeats. The Russian soldier was also dealing with new tactics being employed by the Germans. What was more, the Red Army suffered many problems of supply and the loss of vital industrial regions and the relocation of factories further east hit production hard. As the war progressed, the Red Army became better equipped and more able to cope with the superior skills of the German army. The Red Army's sheer weight of numbers, of both men and materials, was beginning to turn the tide in their favor by mid-1943. had the backup of plentiful tanks and planes, and they appear in the bewildering array of different types used by the German army. The most widely used battle tank was the T-34. This tank made its battlefield debut in 1941, soon after the Germans poured over the Russian border. The Germans had no prior knowledge of the T-34, and they quickly learned to respect it. The T-34's design, which remained largely unchanged throughout the war, was simple and crude, but highly practical. It had excellent sloping armor, which although only 45 millimeters thick, increased its protective capabilities. It had wide tracks that were well suited to the Russian countryside and the worst of the Russian winter. The armaments on the version used at Kursk were a 76 millimeter dual-purpose main gun backed up with three 7.62mm machine guns. It was powered by a very reliable diesel engine and gave a top speed of 33 miles per hour. It weighed around 26 tons and had a five-man crew. The downside was the poorly designed turret that had to be traversed by hand. It was also very cramped with rudimentary radio communications. Fighting alongside the T-34 was the KV-1. This was a heavier tank, weighing in at over 43 tons, which also had a five-man crew. The reliable diesel engine produced a top speed of 22 miles per hour. The armor protection was 110 millimeters thick, and like the T-34, its main gun was a 76 millimeter weapon, backed up with three 7.62 millimeter machine guns. It carried more than adequate ammunition supplies and had excellent suspension. Unfortunately, it also had a poorly designed turret and complex gun sighting mechanism. The crews that manned them were poorly trained, and these faults conspired to ensure that the KV-1 would never have the impact of its more famous stablemate. Kursk is famed for its large tank battle. But equally as ferocious was the aerial war that raged overhead. With their tank forces, the Russians used a few simple designs for their aircraft that were practical and produced in large numbers. The IL-2 was one of these. It would see a great deal of action around Kursk. 
Over 36,000 of these aircraft were manufactured before the end of the war. The IL-2 was a ground attack plane and was an excellent performer at low levels. Top speed was around 250 miles per hour. The main armaments were two 37mm cannons and two 7.62mm machine guns, plus one rear-facing machine gun for added protection. It could also carry up to 600 kilograms of bombs. Best suited to low-level attacks, the construction allowed for a certain amount of armor protection to be included. The main areas protected were the underside, cockpit, and fuel tanks. From its introduction in 1941, the plane was involved in most of the fighting on the Eastern Front. Although the Red Air Force pilots could not match the skills of the Luftwaffe aces, this plane and its pilots did play a significant part in the defeat of the Third Reich. The Nazi propaganda machine had described the Russians as subhuman. The German army advanced into Russia with the belief that they were up against an incapable army, poorly led and badly equipped. The first six months of the war produced evidence that this was indeed the case. However, as 1942 began, the Red Army started to show its true abilities. Its men were able to cope with the extreme weather fluctuations, sustaining themselves on meager rations and living off the land. They had excellent defensive skills, something that the Germans quickly learned to their cost. They also had simple but highly effective equipment that was designed for the punishing weather. The Russian Achilles heel was their poor leadership and fear of their political masters. The tactics employed paid no heed to cost in human lives, and penal squads and summary executions were widely used in an attempt to gain objectives. The overriding motivation of many of the men was their love of Mother Russia. Despite all of the hardships and demands placed upon them, their resilience and determination would see them through to victory. The German army of World War II was arguably one of the most efficient the modern world has seen superbly led by capable leaders such as Gudelin, Rommel, Model, and von Manstein. They achieved victory after victory in the first years of the war. The army was extremely professional and very aggressive. training saw the Wehrmacht employ new and far-thinking tactics with devastating results. These tactics helped them defeat numerically superior enemy forces and secure almost impossible objectives. For two years, their combined tactics and training would take them from Poland to the shores of France 
and then on to the banks of the Volga at Stalingrad, defeating every enemy along the way. that the Wehrmacht had to contend with incessant infighting at higher levels. This sometimes resulted in unclear objectives, most notably during the war with Russia. Without doubt, being led by a dictator such as Hitler, whose military experience and abilities were limited, also had its effect on the final outcome of the war. Masters of the art of counter-attack and equally adept in attack or defense, the German army was, however, a worthy opponent to any foe. Despite an ever-decreasing supply of resources and multiplying difficulties, they remained resolute and focused on their tasks. The heavy defeat at Stalingrad had deeply affected them, and the fact that they quickly recovered and managed a stunning victory at Kharkov is evidence of their capabilities. Contrary to popular belief, by the start of July 1943, the German army was far from defeated. formidable T-34 onto the battlefield caused the Germans to revive some of their pre-war plans for heavier tanks. One of the results was arguably the best tank of World War II. The Panzermark V, or Panther, weighed in at 45 tons. It had a five-man crew protected by 120 millimeter sloped armor. This tank was armed with a superb 75 millimeter L-70 main gun with two 7.92mm MG34 machine guns as backup. It could produce a top speed of 30 miles per hour. It was rushed through production to ensure that it was ready for the Kursk offensive. Hitler placed great hopes on the Panzer and delayed the start of the battle to allow for its production. The early models were plagued with mechanical breakdowns that would have serious consequences for the troops at Kursk. But once the design problems were rectified, the Panther tank became an excellent weapon. The Panzer Mark VI, better known as the Tiger I, was designed to put the Germans ahead of the Russians in tank design. The result was a machine that weighed in at a huge 55 tons. Its five-man crew was well protected by 110 millimeter thick armor. Unlike the Panzer, the Tiger I had the more conventional flat-sided armor that wasn't as effective as sloped armor, but it was so thick that it was virtually impervious to any weapon on the battlefield. The Tiger's main armament 
was a phenomenal 88mm gun, capable of destroying anything it came across at ranges up to 2,000 meters. The close support weapons were the standard two MG-34 machine guns. The 21-liter engine produced a top speed of 24 miles per hour. The first large-scale deployment of the Tiger tank was at Kursk, when approximately 100 were used. They were placed mainly with the elite formations of the Waffen-SS and the Gross-Deutschland division. The Tiger would quickly earn a fearsome reputation and would play its part in helping the Germans smash through the extensive Russian defences during Zitadel. This heavy tank destroyer appeared after Ferdinand Porsche's design for the Tiger I was turned down. The Porsche firm was so confident that their design would be chosen that they had begun to produce their version, but production stopped when Hitler's decision was announced. Rather than waste those that had already been constructed, they were put to use. Hitler had also ordered the design of an assault weapon that could mount the longer L-71 version of the 88mm gun. The Tiger I was incapable of doing this, so the 90 Porsche chassis were chosen. The resulting weapon, Ferdinand, weighed in at a colossal 68 tons and required a crew of six men. The armour protection was provided by 200mm of steel plate. The top speed was only 12 miles per hour. The Ferdinand was rushed through the production stage with very serious consequences for the crews manning them and the infantry who were relying on them during the fighting. During the design stage, the need for a close quarter defence machine gun was overlooked. The suspension was not adequate to support the weight of the tank destroyer, with the result that the vehicle easily bogged down. These flaws helped to ensure that the battlefield debut of the Ferdinand was a failure. 40 of the 80 machines which took part in the battle were lost to the enemy within the first three days. One other important new development made its arrival known during the Kursk offensive. The Stuka dive bomber had played its part in the... Hey, all right. I just switched microphones here. Sorry about that. The armament was two 7.92mm machine guns situated on the wings with a further rear-facing machine gun. It could carry up to 1,800 kilograms of bombs. The Stuka was widely used and during March of 1943, testing took place on a new anti-tank version. Two 37mm flak cannons were fitted to the underside of the plane in place of the bomb load. It was soon found that this weapon was very accurate and effective for destroying enemy tanks. Although the pilots had to go into a shallow dive and get within close range of their targets, making them vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. The use of this new weapon became the responsibility of some of Germany's best-known pilots, among them Hans Ulrich Rudow, an accomplished airman who held Germany's highest award for bravery. Rudow, and the pilots like him, 
put the new tank-busting variant to good use and quickly chalked up a high number of enemy tank kills. The restrictions imposed on Germany after the First World War included a limit on the size of her army. Although painful for the Germans, this restriction would have noticeable benefits when war finally broke out again. The selection process was rigorous, and only the best candidates were chosen. As the political situation changed and the army expanded, these carefully chosen men moved up the ranks and passed their skills down to many others. Another result of the interwar restrictions was that even the most junior soldier was trained to take the place of his superior. With some brilliant tacticians and military minds leading them, and supplied with good equipment, the German army of 1939 was a truly formidable opponent. Unleashed into Poland in September of that year, the skills learned were put to good use. Quick, decisive campaigns followed, one after the other, over the next 18 months. The average German soldier that crossed the Russian border in June 1941 was a well-trained, battle-experienced, and very capable man. Determined and professional, the German soldier of World War II would prove his ability again and again. April 1943 saw the German army in desperate need of recuperation after their recent victory at Kharkov. The Russian army was also in danger of outrunning its own extended supply lines. These two factors resulted in a period of relative quiet over the Kursk region. But as German intentions became clear, the Russians began an intensive program of defensive measures that were designed to trap and blunt the German army. Thousands of anti-tank guns were built into defensive lines in great depth, and millions of anti-tank mines were laid. Both sides prepared for the coming clash throughout May and June 1943. Expectations were high. Both believed that they could achieve a decisive victory, but the commanders of both sides were apprehensive. They could sense the importance of the forthcoming clash, and could see how its outcome would affect the future course of the war. The armies facing each other in the Kursk salient in the late spring of 1943 knew the vital importance of victory in the coming battle. The halting of the Russian offensive in March had brought a lull to the southern sector of the Russian front, an area that had seen horrific and savage fighting for more than six blood-soaked months. As the German intention to attack became clear, an intense period of preparation began for the two opposing armies. 
The halting of the German advances at Stalingrad seriously affected German morale. But a stunning victory in the face of defeat at Kharkov in March 1943 helped to restore faith in the task at hand. The Russians were keen to make the most of their Stalingrad victory and were confident that they were finally starting to defeat the German forces. Their plan suffered a setback at Kharkov. But after this intensive battle, both sides drew their breath and prepared for the next phase of the struggle. The lull that descended over this region allowed the plans to be drawn up and the preparations to begin. Neither the Russians nor the Germans had infinite resources, and it was imperative that one side or the other secured a decisive victory. Hitler and Stalin, Zhukov and Manstein, knew how critical the situation was, and they began to put their plans into action. The brilliant tactician Zhukov commanded the Russians. He wasted no time in taking the measures needed to defeat the Germans. After all, he was familiar with the tactics employed by the invaders and had been instrumental in their biggest setbacks to date. As a defensive strategy had been decided upon, the first steps were to prepare defensive positions from which the Red Army would be able to halt and destroy the German forces. The only way that this would be possible for the overstretched Red Army of 1943 would be by enlisting the help of the civilian population. In the now secure rear areas, the repair of installations damaged or destroyed in the towns recently recaptured began in earnest. With a focus on the need to move vast supplies, feverish work on bridges, road and rail networks was undertaken. The main rail line into Kursk from the east was a hide of activity. Closer to the front line, work also began on the vast defensive belts that were later to entrap the Germans. In all, the Russians prepared a total of five main defensive lines. The first two lines ran around the perimeter of the pocket to a depth of around 10 to 12 miles and were situated close to each other. The remaining lines were spaced apart and ran to a depth of over 150 miles in total. Zukov was clearly taking no chances. Within these defensive lines, construction began on individual positions that were to blunt the expected strong German armoured attacks. Hundreds of thousands of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines were sent to the area. Cheap, easy to manufacture, but highly effective, these devices were planted in huge quantities. Estimates suggest a figure of up to 5,000 mines per mile of front. Other tried and tested measures, such as anti-tank ditches and barbed wire, were also widely employed. The intention was to draw in, hold up, and then destroy the attacker. Overall, 
It is an excellent demonstration of what could be achieved by the effective use of the engineering skills and materials at hand. Although the Citadel plan was approved in early May, the start date was continually delayed. Hitler's desire to leave no room for error saw him postpone again and again. Various factors caused these delays. One was the production of the new Panzer tanks. These delays only helped the preparations of the Russian defences that were very apparent to the German reconnaissance aircraft that flew over and photographed the area countless times. All the while, the highly efficient Lucy spy ring continued to feed the Soviets with accurate information, telling the Soviets exactly where and when the Germans would strike. battle was to assume an importance almost equal to the fighting on land. The number of aircraft that did battle was vast, with around 2,000 planes on the German side, lined up against almost 3,000 on the Russian. The Russian Air Force had improved steadily since the 1941 German invasion. And they were, by this stage of the war, a well-equipped and well-organized force. They had also managed to gain a vital numerical superiority over the Luftwaffe. In the run-up to the battle, the Luftwaffe flew many aerial missions. During June, they destroyed over 300 Russian planes by various means. Their aim was to secure the RL sector. As the battle got underway, the Luftwaffe became heavily involved. of July, the 1st Air Division actually attacked an armoured Russian spearhead near the main Orel de Bryansk railway, and they managed to blunt this potentially dangerous development. When they flew away at the end of the day, hundreds of Soviet tanks lay shattered or in flames. In the South also, the Luftwaffe assisted in the advance of the Panzer forces, helping to avoid catastrophe on more than one occasion. For Kursk, four main Russian air armies were available. The 16th Air Army was responsible for the northern sector of the pocket, and the 2nd Air Army provided cover in the south. Nearby was the 17th Air Army, with the 15th Air Army situated further back. The number of planes available to the Russians was evenly split three ways. Approximately 1,000 bombers, 
1,000 ground attacks and 1,000 fighter planes were available for the coming crash. Facing the Russian pilots were two German air groups. Luftflotte 6 was situated with Model's forces at Army Group Center in the north, whilst Luftflotte 4 was placed near Hoss 4th Army in the south. The disposition of the German air groups in this area produced a ratio of two bombers to one fighter. Like all parts of the German armed services, the Luftwaffe had suffered massive losses over the previous two years. The numerical superiority enjoyed by the Russians also severely hampered German attempts to retain control. protective air umbrellas, the soldiers and tank crews on the ground busied themselves with their preparations. Zukov poured huge amounts of men and materials into the area, and great emphasis was placed on the use of artillery. No fewer than 20,000 artillery pieces would be used during this coming battle. Like mine, Artillery pieces were easier and cheaper to manufacture than tanks. The numbers of Russian soldiers sent into the Kyrgyzstanian area exceeded 1.3 million. In the north of the salient was the Central Front, under the command of General Rokossovsky. In the south was the Voronezh Front, commanded by General Vatuti. In reserve, behind the salient, was the Steppe Front, under the control of General Tomyev. The bulk of the Soviet armor was placed incorrectly in the northern sector of the salient, as the Russians felt this area would receive the hardest blow. This would cause problems for Zhukov in the early stages of the battle. Around 
90 tigers and just over 100 of the new panther tanks were to be found in this region. This was by far the biggest gathering of a new generation of German tanks, and much was expected of them. The plan of attack was simple. It was to smash through the Russian defences and meet behind Kursk. But one important factor was missing, an effective reserve force. This was no longer possible for the Germans at this stage in the war. Although the Russians were receiving intelligence information from the Lucy Spyri, this was at a higher level and did not give enough detail on the front line changes that occurred. The sheer size of the opposing armies involved made it impossible to conceal them effectively. The increasing aerial armada was put to good use as extensive reconnaissance from the air was carried out. The Germans actually commented that they had photographed every piece of the intended battlefield area in the run-up to the start date. The main defensive measures used by the Russians could be seen from the air, but the more detailed gun emplacements were still expertly hidden. A number of dummy positions were constructed as a time-tested means of fooling the enemy. German confidence was running high, and nothing they saw altered their decision to attack. The Russians also used information gathered from captured prisoners. Special raids were carried out in order to snatch prisoners for this purpose. The Germans, too, used this type of information gathering. Before any major operation, the radio traffic passing among the enemy units increased dramatically, with specially trained troops intercepting it. It is impossible to know fully the intentions of the enemy, but through the use of these various methods, a clearer picture of their plans can be determined. By the 5th of July 1943, everything was in place. The vast quantities of men, tanks, ammunition, guns and planes were in their position. Every person from the infantry right up to army group commanders was in a state of anticipation and excitement. The reliable information provided to the Soviet sources revealed the date and the time of the German attack which was further confirmed by captured German prisoners. Zhukov therefore planned a huge preemptive artillery strike against the German position. The aim was to catch the Germans as they began to assemble and thus deliver a severe psychological blow to the enemy, even before a shot had been fired. In the central front area, the Russian artillery opened up and for almost an hour, hundreds of guns fired towards the suspected enemy emplacements.
Modell's forces quickly recovered from the Russian barrage and began to reply with their own artillery attack. And over the northern part of the Kursk Stadium, the noises, flashes of light, burst from the Everybody, okay, let's see, shut this down here. All right. Okay. Well, just some interesting questions here. Some people asked me, so I figured I'd give some uh, interesting facts here that things that make you think. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see. The German 88 can travel up to nine. Uh, it can travel up to 9.8 miles. Um, so they, they had that mounted on their Tiger tanks. So with supreme accuracy, it goes. Uh, you can go 6.8 miles. That's pretty far. That's pretty far. 6.8 miles with supreme accuracy. I mean, so uh, let's see here. Um, the the okay. What's the the uh, best or the uh, best artillery or longest shooting artillery weapon ever made? Well, actually, that was the German. It was the German uh, Paris gun. They called it. And the longest range of that military gun was uh, 68 miles. 68 miles. You can go up 70. Oh, I'm sorry. 78 miles. 75, 75 miles. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I got that wrong. 75 miles this sucker could travel, the Paris gun. I don't know how many they built. I don't know why they didn't use more of them. Uh, 75 miles, that's quite a distance, especially in Europe. I mean, my goodness, you know. Uh, so, but they, um, and then, of course, the Americans had the uh, howitzer, which was, a, that can, uh, that was, a, that could go uh, pretty far. That would go, that could travel up to 13.8 miles, the howitzer. So uh, interesting facts there um, in the distance. Um, and the 88 also, they would trap, they could, had 92 rounds they could store in their turret. And, of course, you had the, um, what's the most feared machine gun ever, uh, or what gun has the farthest range? Well, the the 50, the 50 Browning machine gun uh, round at effective ranges up to uh, nearly 2,000 yards. Um how far can a 50 caliber bullet go? Uh, 50 caliber bullet could travel up to five miles, depending on the wind and whatnot. How far can a 22 go? A 22 bullet can travel up to 1.3 miles. So that's not that far at all. A nine millimeter can go up to uh, three miles, three miles, two, two to three miles, depending on the wind speed and weather and whatnot. So, uh, so uh, yeah, it goes pretty far. So you know, when you're shooting, you know, you gotta be careful. You know, be very careful. You know, you know, you know it's like shooting up into the air. You got to be an idiot, you know. And plus, those things come back down, you know. And people just don't understand that. So, um, what was the farthest shot anybody has ever done a kill shot? Farthest shot? Actually, that would be held by, I think it's Chris Kyle. I think it's 2,100 uh, yards away. That was a confirmed kill, actually. 106, uh, he had actually 255 claimed kills. 160 were confirmed. Uh, as far as this confirmed kill took place in 2008 near Sadar City at 2,100 yards. So, uh, but uh, as far as the German Germans go, uh, their, their military might again Hitler. Everyone reveres Hitler as this great, this great. Uh, it was really his generals that were very smart, and Hitler was actually a complete idiot when you think about it. He was. He was a complete imbecile. He had it all. I mean, he should have never attacked Russia. I mean, uh, you know, he was paranoid. He was just paranoid. He didn't trust anybody, and, and the Battle of Kursk really was the stupidest dupe job he ever made. Uh, he should have just built a defensive. I mean, got. I mean, he should have salvaged his army in uh, in Stalingrad, 
got him out there. He had that victory afterwards, and then he should have rested him and dug in defensively and, and, and rebuilt his material supply lines up. And then he probably could have won. You know, he could have won. Or even just stayed defensive. The Allies would have never had a chance evading, uh, uh, storming the, the, the beach of Normandy. They would have just never had a chance at that time if uh, uh, if if Hitler would have uh, had his entire military in place and intact. They would have drove him right back, right back. But then I'm sure the Americans would have never ever allied up with Britain at that time. They would have waited, and technology would have eventually been in our favor, and our technology would have surpassed the Germans, and we would have. Most definitely, uh, uh, with our resources, so we could defeat anybody. So that's 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 a fact. I mean, our land mass is so large and big. See, Japan screwed up. See, Japan really drew us in there by attacking us, and that's the problem why we got dragged in in our early stage. We didn't have the, the we had the idiot Roosevelt for president, and we just didn't have the military strength. It was weakened and it was depleted from World War One still, and. Uh, you know, we just didn't, we weren't building up our military uh, industrial complex. We weren't building it up. Our tanks, we had no tanks. Our our Navy was weak. I mean, so, you know, and the rest of the world was here, you know, building their stuff up, getting ready, you know, because this was the time that, you know, this is what they were getting ready to do during this time, still conquer. So, uh, you know, but now, of course, with the military we have now, nobody would, in their right mind, would attack us. We have the most strongest military ever. I mean, the technology we have, uh, the Navy, our Navy is just absolutely, our Navy is so powerful. I mean, the tech, and our destroyers, our, our battleships, our aircraft carriers are just absolutely superb. And uh, our Air Force is what's really, really devastating. I mean, we have a, a plane called the Raptor. I mean, the thing to freaking, I mean, it, it, it's got such stealth capability. I mean, it's just absolutely a superb aircraft, very expensive to build. I think we only got like 30 of them or 40 of them, but the, those 30 Raptors can practically destroy an entire country. I mean, they're just they're they're just superb. The Raptor. Let me uh, look it up here. The Raptor. Let me see here, real quick here. Um, uh, U.S. Air Force. Uh, let's see here. Um, I think I looked this up one time before. I don't know if I got it still in my browser. The F-22 Raptor Air Force uh, fact sheet is a combination of stealth, super, super cruise maneuverability, and integrated uh, avionics coupled with improved supportability. Um, this is just um, Lockheed M-22 Raptor is American single-seat, twin-engine, supersonic, all-weather tactical stealth fighter aircraft developed for the United States Air Force. Its top speed is 1,500 miles an hour. Its range is 1,864 miles. Its weight, 43,000 pounds. I mean, this thing is just uh, absolutely crazy. I mean, the, the, the this aircraft—it's the most—it's the most lethal fighter ever built. I mean, absolutely superb fighter. I mean, uh, it, it, it's it's 